0: I'm going to move over to the political side of things a bit now. That what happened? Well, in the main union federation at the time was the uh, uh, the American Federation of Labor, which also had its affiliates in Canada, and they were based as a they were a craft union, and very very anti-communist, anti-socialist, and they took a despicable role and signed many no-strike agreements during the Great Depression. And uh, I, I'm, you've seen similar things from many trade unions and many so-called left leaders and social democratic leaders in the COVID crisis. That, you know, be no-strike pledges and uh, failure to act. So there was a complete um, betrayal of reformism on the one side, inability to fight and lead the working class. But on the other side, you had the Communist International, the the Communist Party. And in 1929, the Communist International had adopted the third period, the the ultra-left third period uh, idea that equated every single non-communist political tendency with fascism. So there was The fascists, the conservative fascists, liberal fascists, and socialist fascists, social fascists, everybody was fascism, and there was going to be a revolution tomorrow. When the reality is that in the depression, people had their heads down, people were afraid of losing their jobs, they were afraid of fighting. It was the need was for defensive struggles, not offensive struggles, and they took it a very the, the social fascist policy led to extreme sectarianism. They rejected any kind of united front with the social democratic, the workers who supported social democratic parties or unions, where, where that was absolutely needed in defensive struggles of the period. And, and they advocated red unionism, that this idea that you split away the radical minority and form pure red unions. This is explicitly what Lenin said not to do in his classic work Left-Wing Communism infantile disorder. That what you do is you stay and fight within within the existing workers organisations to help give leadership and organisation to the mass of the workers to overcome the right-wing bureaucratic leadership. If you split away the radicals, you're just leaving the mass of the workers to be uh, uh, bureaucratically ruled by the right-wing apparatus. And so you, you need to stay and fight to win a majority and mobilise the mass and win over the mass to a socialist policy rather than split away to revolutionary purism. Uh, in Canada, the Communist Party of Canada started off this uh, to- desperately ultra-left policy of seizing the streets, of street battles, and they were just beaten up by the cops. And when the, any, any form of uh, non-communist Union or party tried to give them a solidarity. They said, "No, no, no! You're just as bad as the cops." So total failure of the unite any sort of united front. And and it played into the hands of the state that uh, the Communist Party of Canada was legalised. That there was a law on the books, uh, Section ninety eight, which was implemented after the Winnipeg General Strike. It was a totally anti democratic, uh, dictatorial law that I uh, said that yeah, any party that advocates overthrow of the government is illegal. Well what's the point of a political party? All political parties advocate overthrow of the government if Liberals or conservatives, you know what's the point of running an elections if you want to overthrow this government and replace it with yourself uh, so the uh, but this was used for a legalization of the Communist Party and the leaders of the Communist Party were ele- arrested. Timbuk, were that the Canada's Stalin, who previously done a coup against the previous leaders of the Communist Party of Canada, uh, Maurice Specter and Jack Macdonald, uh, the founders who, who turned to Trotskyism, they were expelled by Tim Buck and uh, uh, before this ultra-left binge. But uh, the leaders of the Communist Party were arrested, isolated. In fact, there was an assassination attempt against Tim Buck in Kingston Jail and he only narrowly survived. They shut up uh, his jail cell. Uh, now, the, the the communists with their third period policy, they they didn't wage the best uh, action against this uh, disgusting attack by the state. But we shouldn't uh, then excuse the actions of the state. No, no, no. That uh, this was again the paranoid regime. And and they did disgusting things. You know, Canada is seemed to be oh this nice democratic country. What did they do? They arrested people in the middle of the night. They if they didn't have uh, couldn't get all of their immigration status in order or if they were born abroad and were a communist. Well, they were without trial whisked away. Found themselves in Halifax on the east coast. Uh, before they could even talk to a judge, or a lawyer, or anything. And they sent Jewish communists back to Nazi Germany, which is an effective death sentence. That's what the Canadian state did during this period. Now, the Communist Party of Canada, as part of the Red Union policy, they founded the Workers' Unity League. The Workers' Unity League. That was their uh, Red Union, and... On the one side, you had the reformists doing nothing. And on the other side, you had the Workers' Unity League, which was to give them their due, were the only people really fighting during this period. But they weren't doing so in, in a way that could form a united front. But uh, the, the leadership had made all these mistakes. But we shouldn't then tar the rank and file of the communist movement with the same brush. In fact, they were incredibly heroic individuals, capable individuals involved in the Communist Party of Canada for lack of any alternative. That, in fact, the Communist Party of Canada was the first pan-Canadian workers party and in the 1920s united all of the best elements of the organised working class. And, and, and they led a, uh, a strike in, in Esteban uh, that was defeated People were killed. The state came down, crushed them from on high. But uh, uh, th- these were sort of isolated struggles during this period. But they, they achieved quite a lot. They had uh, about 1,300 uh, members during the period. And one very significant uh, action that was led by the Communist Party was the onto Ottawa Trek that they organized the unemployed in the work camps. Actually, I remember having a, uh, a chat with Ted Grant back in the 1990s. And at that time, the, the conservative government was talking about workfare, was talking about the possibility of forcing the unemployed to do work to get their unemployment benefit. And, uh, and, and this, this is totally reactionary. Because, on the uh, if it's a job that needs doing well, it should be do, done by unionized workers at union rates, other and but otherwise the labor is totally demeaning and insulting, which is the idea behind it. Um, so it's totally reactionary. But I remember Ted Grant saying, Yeah, we'll fight this, but at the same time, they're idiots to implement it because workfare and other such work camps ends up organizing the unemployed. Unemployed generally are atomized. They're, they're just sort of spread out throughout the population. You bring them into a work camp situation and you concentrate them and you make it far easier for socialists, communists, Marxists, revolutionaries, union organizers to actually organize these people. And, and that's what happened uh, in this sense with the slave camps, the work camps, that the, the Relief Camp Workers Union was formed. There was quite an energetic communist who was, uh, played a leading role in it, uh, a, a guy called Arthur Slim Evans, Slim Evans, who was a great sort of natural leader of the working class, could give a great speech, really rile everybody up. And, uh, and they had a slogan, uh, work and wages and unemployment insurance. Uh, There's important weaknesses in those slogans, which I'll come to later. Uh, But there's an irony in this, in that the camps were put in place to stop revolution. But by concentrating all of the unemployed together, they actually had the opposite effect of radicalizing people. And within a year, the the, the, the communist founded uh, Relief Camp Workers Union had organized practically every camp in British Columbia. It's incredible that they were able to do this, given the military, that these camps were literally run by the military, literally run by the military. And anybody seen to be doing any kind of organizing was immediately expelled and blacklisted. But what they did is, you know, they they did organizing, they got expelled, they picked up the phone book, they picked a random name, they went back in and they had a sort of a policy of, you know, sort of like, you know, if you see me again, don't call me by my real name. Uh, so they managed to get to get around that. Uh, they also produced a paper, the relief camp worker that was smuggled into the camp. Uh, anyway, anyone found with this paper was expelled. But they still managed to do it. They still managed to do it, and they organised every everyone that, uh, that there was hundreds of disturbances, riots, strikes, uh, and the, and organised by the uh, the workers' union, and. And eventually this came to a head through a mass walkout in April of 1935. Slim Evans led his camp and a bunch of others. 1,500 men and an incredible sort of military operation To that, if you think about it, these people have got no resources. They've got no money. So they've got to appeal to the working class population for food, for lodging, there was incredible support. They, they they managed to get huge sympathy. So they, they 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 fed and they housed all of these people. They managed to ride the rails and and uh, hitch rides, get to Vancouver and uh, and they man- managed to organize in various divisions and, uh, and and it was they proceeded to have several months of demonstrations demanding work and wages, unemployment Insurance uh, and 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 the working class came to came out to support them. There was a mothers' council formed, who were calling for support for our boys. Right, there's actually a great picture of uh, that the mothers form like a, a crowd in the shape of a heart uh, around the unemployed workers. Uh, there was uh, you know fourteen thousand people came out on a demo to support them. Vancouver Council, a Liberal Council, asked the Bennett Conservatives for support. Said no, this is a municipal problem. This is your issue. We're not giving anything. Uh, they they occupied the library at uh, Main and Hastings, a quite um, sort of uh, architecturally significant building in Vancouver that still stands. And uh, and and the police tried to victimise them, called them sort of uh, Soviet agitators. Uh, actually this is the whole idea of the police mentality blaming every working class movement on outside agitators when in fact this came from the logic of the crisis in the working class. police were presenting this as a general strike to declare soviet power and uh and we weren't quite the movement wasn't quite there yet, but it shows the paranoid mentality so after yeah six weeks of uh struggle in Vancouver, the movement was starting to Uh, reach an impasse. And that's where they had the idea, Slim Evans proposed, that they start a march on Ottawa. That they start riding the rails and going to Ottawa in the east of the country, thousands of miles away, for those of you who don't know Canadian geography, and uh, and demand uh, what what they've been calling for. Uh, Interestingly, this was actually opposed by the Stalinist leadership of the communist party of canada uh, headed by tim buck they they didn't want this to happen slim evans was a bit of a hothead from their perspective uh, and and, it, and he got a got it in the neck later for that so they jumped they jumped on the trains they and uh, proceeded eastward the, the, the vancouver authorities were quite happy to get rid of them and uh, they ended up in calgary in alberta where and there was sympathy walkouts in the work cap the Alberta work cups. they were bolstered by an extra thousand workers. Uh, but at this point, Slim Evans was ordered by the Communist Party back to Vancouver, where I'm sure he got some very, very sharp words uh, before he was uh, uh, allowed to come back to uh, support the struggle. They moved from Calgary to Regina and uh, and, and this is when the Bennett government decided it was not going to allow them to go any further. It was going to end this one way or another. So first of all, they started playing for time and they called the leaders to negotiate. So then they, the leaders of the movement went on the train all the way to Ottawa to negotiate with the government. They faced a brick wall. No, 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 no but it's a delaying tactic just to tie everybody out. So they got back and they tried to continue. All of the train lines were blocked. They weren't allowed to continue. And then on uh, July 1st, Canada Day, Dominion Day, at the d- time, a provocation was organized. There was a, a mass rally there. Uh, thousands of people in the, uh, uh, the s- exhibition grounds in Regina, Regina Saskatchewan and actually although most of the workers weren't there it was mostly sympathetic uh, supporters uh, from the city most of the workers were actually going to watch a baseball game but uh, the leaders of the movement were speaking to a to a mass rally and while they were doing that the police encircled the rally with lead-tipped truncheons and sawed off baseball bats and they used section 98 as an excuse to come in and attack everybody. They, they arrested the uh, the leaders uh, at the top platform and they just started beating into the crowd. It was a huge bloodbath. There were street fights going on until the early morning. Hundreds were injured. Five were shot. 39 cops were hospitalized. Two people died. And the the, the Regina, the, the Onto-Ottawa track, was stopped in Regina and showed the brutality of the state at that point. So the, the movement was defeated. It was defeated at that point, uh, although it, it gained a partial victory in that Bennett was defeated in the uh, the following general election and the camps were closed down the following year. But there's an important reason why the, the Onto Ottawa Trek failed. First of all, we shouldn't deny this was an incredibly significant and heroic movement of the working class. That even though they, uh, the Workers' Unity League was organized as a red union, it was able to initiate this struggle uh, where nobody else was fighting. But an important thing that was missing was that, that because of their third period policy, they didn't have a perspective of uniting... the the unemployed workers with the broader working class, and especially the organized working class. And that isolated them. They had a lot of sympathy, but they didn't have any organized unity. And, And on the one side, you had the sort of sectarianism of the third period, but on the other side, you actually had the reformism of their slogans, work and wages and unemployment insurance. These are not slogans that can unite the the unemployed with the employed. If you read Trotsky's transitional program, you will see that what Trotsky advocates is a sliding scale of wages and a sliding scale of hours. To deal with unemployment, you reduce the hours to accommodate the unemployed and therefore increase the relative hourly wage so everybody keeps uh, the same wage. Uh, that is a slogan that Trotsky advanced that unites the employed and the unemployed, and and the onto Ottawa Trek and the Workers Unity League did not did do that. Another thing is that the day after they left Vancouver, in fact, started a longshoreman strike, a very important longshoreman strike that was inspired by uh, the San Francisco longshoreman strike, and uh, and and they totally could have. Linked up with that, so it was wrong to think that there weren't also radical movements, militant movements of the working class that they could have united with. They absolutely could have. So, but it, but it, but we shouldn't deny the fact that this was a, a vitally important struggle with uh, important repercussions. But we should learn the lessons for the future. You must link the employed and the unemployed. Okay, moving on. One phenomenon of crisis, or crises, is the destruction of old parties and the creation of new formations. We've seen this in the present crisis. You've seen new formations come up, like Podemos in Spain, the rise and fall of Syriza, uh, Mélenchon in France, Corbyn in Britain, Bernie Sanders, kind of. Uh, that new formations for, throw up and, and old formations collapse. And you got a similar thing in the 1930s. Uh, cl- one classic example is the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the forerunner of the new, Canada's New Democratic Party, the, the NDP, Canada's Labour Party. That this was founded in nineteen thirty three, in Regina. I've founded the Regina wrote the Regina Manifesto that uh, declared that no CCF government will rest content until capitalism is eradicated. Uh, although we have to say that the CCF probably wouldn't have been formed if it wasn't for the Stalinist failure of the Communist Party. Communist Party was the first pan-Canadian workers party founded in 1921 united all the best elements of the working class and if it wasn't for the ultra-left adventures of stalinism of third periodism then all of the best elements of the working class probably would have joined the communist party instead of founding the ccf but uh, the ccf filled that uh, vacuum you also had uh, a very interesting formation known as social credit and 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 this uh, destroyed the alberta government the united farm workers Farmers of Alberta government. So you're full of existing parties. And social credit was started up uh, as in Alberta by a preacher, a populist preacher called William Aberhart. And he, he actually latched on to what is essentially a Marxist idea and then misinterpreted it. And uh, But the idea is that the workers are not paid the full value of their labor. That's one of the foundational tenets of Marxist economics. The workers aren't paid the full value of labor, but they're not paid for their labor. They're paid for their labor power. They're paid for their ability to work. And the profits of the capitalists come from surplus value. Now, Abahar and the social creditors, they said, look, the worker isn't paid the full value of the labor. The surplus is uh, stolen by financiers and capitalists and therefore the society needs to provide social credit to uh, compensate for the unpaid value of the workers' labour. But because it was based on capitalism, it became totally utopian, and they uh, basically resolved this down into giving out vouchers, or the idea was to give out vouchers worth $25 a month to the working class. But then eventually, that the, this created a huge populist mass movement. It's so like, yeah, give me my $25. Give me my $25. Uh, so that they had thousands and thousands of people on board. Uh, I, I think the only modern day similar phenomenon would be like the Five Star Movement in Italy. So like a, a populist uh, mass movement that's neither really left or right wing. And uh, they were swept into power and then found out that they couldn't just get the $25 to give people, that they tried to do it by printing money and that's hugely inflationary. Uh, and, and and eventually the whole idea of social credit collapsed and they just became a classical bourgeois party, or actually one of the main capitalist parties in in the west of Canada all the way up until the, the late 1980s. Um, but uh, this was thrown up in that period. You had other sort of populist leaders. Uh, there was Mitch Hepburn in Ontario. You had Duplessis, right-wing populist, anti-communist uh, in Quebec who implemented the padlock door that any uh, business, any building that was deemed to be communist affiliated or had communist meetings could be immediately padlocked by the police with no trial, uh, no due process, nothing. And uh, and uh, so you so you had both right and left populism and 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 these weird formations like social credit so labor what ha- was began picking up its head from the the utter crisis of the 29 to 33 period where everybody had their head down with the economy improving then workers started to have more confidence to fight. And there was a number, in 1934, there were three really significant struggles in the United States. One of which was the Minneapolis Teamsters strike, which was led by Trotskyists. Another one was the West Coast Longshoremen, which was led by the Communist Party. And the third one was the Toledo Auto Light strike, led by... The American Workers Union which eventually fused with the Trotskyists it's in, it's instructed that through these three significant strikes that broke the uh, uh, that bro- broke the silence of workers struggle they're all led by various revolutionary tendencies and and this gave the impetus to the formation of the CAO the Congress of Industrial, Organisations that uh, in nineteen thirty-five, and this really blew up a division between the old American Federation of Labour, craft union, uh, yellow union, quite often sign no strike agreements, uh, and uh, work with the bosses, versus this idea of revolutionary idea of industrial unionism. Now, some people don't even really know what these terms mean: craft union versus industrial union. Well, a craft union organizes just the highly skilled workers, the technicians, the experts, and leaves the unskilled workers unorganized, and uh, and and it's quite elitist. There's even quite a lot of history of racism in uh, in craft unions, and whereas and so that was sort of the AFL tradition. Samuel Gompers was a significant figure in that, and. Historically, the, the, the industrial union was put forward by the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies, that said that a union should uh, encompass everybody who works for the boss. Right? Everybody in the company, whether they're the you know a highly skilled technician or the person who sweeps the floors, that they're all part of the same union because they're all exploited together and you build that unity. Uh, the AFL, the craft unions opposed this as a so-called communist plot. But uh, with the impetus of the Minneapolis and Toledo and Teamster uh, and, and, and um, Longshoremen strikes of 34, a sector of the, the old leadership of the AFL split away to the left on the basis of industrial unionization, formation of the International Brotherhood of, te- of, 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 of Teamsters, of steel workers, of um, uh, and the United Auto Workers, most significantly, played uh, uh, played a role in the formation of the CIO, um, and uh, and this was led by old bureaucrats. This was led by old AFL bureaucrats, and then, and you know people came to them and said, "Well, don't you realize that a lot of your organizers are communists?" And one of these bureaucrats said, "Who gets the bird, the hunter or the dog?" Right. So these bureaucrats were using communists as be their union organizers, the, do- the, 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 the wild dogs, to go and grab the wor- workers and organize those unions, whereas the bureaucracy kept control. Right? Uh, but it led to some really significant struggles, really significant struggles. Uh, notable struggles, Flint's sit-down strike of 1936. And, th- and this was the uh, United Order workers, General Motors. This was a strike for recognition because the bosses refused to recognize the union, refused to conduct collective bargaining, and instead of just organizing your classic picket line, the workers occupied the plant. So you know scabs can come in the plant, but they're going to get any work done when there's thousands of uh, striking workers there occupying the machinery. Don't think so. The occupation for forty-four days, and and there was huge running fights. Uh, with scabs and cops, but it was victorious and, the, and they managed the flint sit down strike achieved recognition. A year later, General Motors in Oshawa in Canada, that uh, they uh, uh, organized a similar strike for recognition. They didn't occupy the plant. It was classic picket lines, but they faced police violence and, uh, and the provincial uh, premier, uh, Mitch Hepburn, organized these thugs known as Sons of Mitches, who came to try and beat up the uh, the organizers. That you know, they said this was you know, this is a communist plot, this was American infiltration. Actually, the funny thing about the 1930s is that, well, now people would like to think of Canada as more left-wing than the United States, whereas in the 1930s the main influence of radicalization was from the United States into Canada. Uh, so GM Osher was an important, also victory of Canadian labor. Uh, for industrial unionization. Uh, 1937 was actually a historic year of working class struggle in the Americas. In the United States, there was 4,740 strikes. There were This encompassed 20% of all organized workers were on strike in 1937. Uh, there was 1,860,621 strikers Incredible numbers, and and at the time, this was the greatest year of class struggle in American history. Uh, maybe there have been years since that have been at a higher level, but at the time, it was the most uh, militant year in Canadian, in American history, and and Canada was also encompassed in that. Nineteen thirty-seven is also the year where the New Deal came to its limit. That yeah, you know, that it restored the profits. But it hadn't restored a positive cycle of accumulation of an expansion of capital. So the minute that the the money started being withdrawn of the New Deal stimulus, well, then the economy started going back down. And even the New Deal, it didn't get it even back up to the 19, level of 1929. This was uh, 10% below 1929. And it started going uh, back down as private capital failed to pick up the slack. The so-called pump priming of the Keynesianists did not work and does not work. Fundamentally does not work. So how did the, the capitalists get out of the Great Depression? As they were going down, the, the economy went back down in 37 and 38. How did they get out of it? Well, it was war production. Second World War that the only way that the capitalists were able to resolve the crisis of production, the production, the crisis of protectionism, uh, the, the crisis of the contradiction between private ownership of the means of production being hemmed in by the nation state, the only way they were able to overcome that crisis was a fratricidal world war where over 55 million people were killed. That's how they solved it. That's how they solved it. And there was a literal destruction of the productive forces, not just shutting down factories, but blowing up factories on the whole of Europe. And the 50s and 60s boom were on the basis of post-war reconstruction that played an important role in developing uh, the, the economy up all the way up until 1958. And with the dominance of U.S. imperialism that uh, uh, led to the battering down of trade barriers and the expansion of world trade. Ted Grant explains this very well in his classic work, Will There Be a Slump? And explains how Keynesianism, how deficit financing does not fundamentally solve the problem. All it does is put it off a few years and then you've got the same crisis, but now with debt repayments. And, and, and that's what re- happened in the 1970s, that you had massive debt repayments and inflation because of the Keynesianist policies of the previous period. That brings us back to now. That brings me back to a conclusion. Lessons of the Great Depression. Well, it was a period of radicalization, a period of workers' action, and a period where capitalism could have been overthrown. Absolutely that the, uh, the and the reason it wasn't so the communist parties that were formed in the United States and in Canada in the 1920s in the early 20s if they were on the healthy basis they'd got to a level of being a few thousand by the beginning of the 30s if they were on a healthy basis and not a sectarian third period basis they could uh, they could have absolutely leapfrogged into being mass organizations and led those mass worker struggles of the late 30s. Unfortunately, they'd taken sectarian positions, and they were isolated, and they weren't able to take advantage, and the Trotskyists came too late on history. They, they, the American Trotskyists did manage to develop quite well during the period, but they started from too small a base and too late to really take a, a advantage of the situation. Now we are entering into a new Great Depression. We're entering into a new Great Depression and there will be just as massive movements, revolutionary movements and counter-revolutionary movements, populist movements of the left and the right variety. This will come out and eventually workers struggle. People reject capitalism. They already reject capitalism. They already reject capitalism and they're looking for workers' organisation. So that is the real lesson. You must build the workers' organization. You must build the revolutionary organization. You must join the IMT, the International Marxist Tendency. That's what you must do. Help us build it. We are getting an important base in several countries, an important base in several countries. And one of the huge advantages we have over the revolutionaries of the 1930s is that we don't have to cope with the counter-revolutionary example of Stalinism. We don't, it's not a mass phenomenon anymore. In most countries, and we have also learned the lessons. We are able to learn the lessons and learn from the mistakes of our forebears. So, if you want to end this system, if you do not want to let us go through another Great Depression and you know, and new fratricidal wars and environmental catastrophe and the COVID crisis, which the capitalists are incapable of solving, if you don't want that, if you want fundamental change. Join us, help us overthrow this system and put it to bed. And that is the best way to learn the lessons of the Great Depression. Thank you.